Welcome to the Physics Capsule podcast. This is where we give you a scientific perspective of the world. We are a couple of physicists and science communicators. Join us as we indulge in conversation and try to reason out the physics behind the world around you. So here we are at last, the final episode of series 1 of the Physics Capsule podcast. It's been quite a journey so far and we have enjoyed recording these episodes. We hope you have enjoyed listening to them too. We have something special for you this week. Lots of physics of course, but not something of the kind we normally discuss. Perhaps we should say it's something more exciting. It's definitely more exciting. How about we start with a little conversation? When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. Subic's notes. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Does Loki need any particular kind of power source? He'd have to heat the cube to 120 million Kelvin just to break through the Coulomb barrier. Unless Subic has figured out how to stabilize the quantum tunneling effect. Well, if he could do that, he could achieve heavy ion fusion at any reactor on the planet. Finally, someone who speaks English. Is that what just happened? That was Tony Stark, Bruce Banner and Steve Rogers discussing Loki's latest tantrum with Shield agent Maria Hill in the first Avengers film. What we're going to do today is discuss the physics behind all the stuff we see about superheroes when we read comics or watch films. And this episode will be all about the MCU. Yes. Okay, let's start with what we just heard. Iron Man and the Hulk discussing the astrophysicist Eric Selvig's notes on something called the extraction theory. Following that, Steve Rogers asks if Loki needs some kind of power source, to which Banner says he'd have to heat the cube to 120 million Kelvin to break the Coulomb barrier. This is a problem we had once upon a time in physics which prevented us even theoretically from fusing particles together. Let's say you took a pair of protons and wanted to bombard them together. You can bring them close up to a certain distance, but beyond that they would repel each other. That's because two protons both have the same charge. Exactly. And this repulsion, this barrier of sorts that prevents you from fusing two particles together is called the Coulomb barrier. One way you can break through the barrier is by heating your system. But the kind of energy you would need for that is unimaginable as far as our current technologies go. That's why Banner says Loki will have to heat the cube to 120 million Kelvin to cause fusion to occur. That's roughly equal to 120 million degrees Celsius or nearly 215 million degree Fahrenheit. That's a lot, but Iron Man says something else right after that. Right, he says the whole temperature thing wouldn't be a problem if Selvig has figured out how to stabilize the quantum tunneling effect. That's a funny way of putting it. Unless of course you don't know what they're talking about, then it'll sound really clever and futuristic. What is saying there is essentially an idea George Gamow talked about in the 1930s. Nuclear fusion is going on in the sun all the time. However, the temperature of the sun is too low for fusion to actually occur classically. But quantum mechanics actually allows for this to occur through a process called tunneling. Through tunneling, a particle can slip past the Coulomb barrier of another particle, allowing for fusion to occur. Think of yourself trapped in a magical well. There are two ways you can get out. 
you could climb out which would demand a lot of your effort because you have to climb over the wall and jump onto the other side or say every now and then a little hole opens up in the wall and you wait for it and then quickly slip outside this is based on chance of course because you don't know when the hole will open up but that's what tunneling is it's not it's just that there is a finite probability that you can slip through or tunnel through a barrier rather than gaining enough energy to jump over it the first thing that you said climbing over a wall is what we are doing when we increase the temperature to enable fusion to occur the second thing is what we are doing when we employ quantum tunneling or the quantum tunneling effect as star calls it explicitly uh, equally important is what banner says in reply yes he says if selvik found a way to employ quantum tunneling then we could have fusion reactors generating energy right here on earth one of the things we have been working on in physics is precisely that right now we have fusion reactors where we generate energy by breaking up heavy atoms that means one atom can break up and release energy and neutrons that break up more atoms and so on it goes on like a chain and you need control measures in place that's why the fusion reactors we have now although they are completely environment friendly are not among the safest options around fusion reactors on the other hand require several initial driving forces but almost no control mechanisms or containment procedures because if the reactor breaks down the fusion reaction stops instantly yes unlike fusion reactors there won't be a runaway chain reaction or reactor meltdown and leakage so fusion reactors by nature are incredibly safe which reminds me of the doc ock fiasco in spider-man 2 the good ones not the amazing spider-man <laughs> yeah the good ones uh, in the head doctor octopus replicates the sun and the climax is all about containing the fusion reactor but containment is not a problem at all exactly i think they douse it in water eventually which is a bigger issue because whether or not that shuts down the fusion reaction it risks evaporating all that water into radioactive steam that will be extremely dangerous to everyone in the area absolutely they probably didn't think it through <laughs> but i think we're willing to let that go because comic book physics yes <laughs> so let's get back to the fusion reaction although what they've uh, they're talking about here is loki coming to earth there's another reactor in the mcu that's probably the most famous of them all Sir, the reactor has accepted the modified core. I will begin running diagnostics. That was Jarvis telling Stark that the reactor has accepted the modified core. What he's talking about is the arc reactor in Stark's chest that's keeping him alive. There's actually a lot going on here. First, the arc reactor that Stark originally built was driven by palladium. The trouble with palladium is that it is radioactive and it's ironically actually killing him slowly. Second, the modified core contains a new element that Stark synthesized based on data he'd gathered from his father's old plans for uh, Stark Industries. The replacement for palladium is what Jarvis is talking about here. This is from Iron Man 2, isn't it? That's right. So let's start at the beginning with the arc reactor itself. How does it work? We don't really know for sure. That's the simple answer. <laughs> it's it's not stated anywhere in the comics clearly enough uh, no but we can come up with a simple idea based on what we do know though it's a nuclear reactor that's a given and it uses palladium which decomposes into either rhodium or silver the other thing about nuclear reactors is that they don't produce electricity directly they do so by first producing heat and then using that to run turbines just like in thermal energy generators or hydroelectric power plants true 
But if Stark did use that, he would be boiled within minutes. So that's out of the question. <laughs> the yeah. idea is to convert nuclear energy into electricity directly. I've been looking into some radioactive isotopes of palladium. It has four stable ones, six in all, including the unstable ones, and they all decay through different processes. Uh, that's interesting. I have this written down. Uh, for example, palladium 91 beta plus decays into rhodium. So does palladium 92 all the way to palladium 103. On the other hand, palladium 107 and up all beta minus decay into silver. So just as a clarification for our listeners, beta plus decay means a positron is released and a beta minus decay means an electron is released. Yeah, and just as importantly, a beta plus decay means electron capture can occur. So a beta plus decay captures electrons while a beta minus decay releases electrons. So if Stark used a palladium isotope over 107 to release electrons and used an isotope below 103 to capture electrons, he would have an electron flow in between the two reactors that he could in principle use as um, electric power. Right. But that would require two reactors, not one. And the whole scheme is incredibly complex. Getting two such reactions to occur in such a small volume and having electron flow between them and using the potential difference between the two reactors for energy generation, that's, that's a fantastic idea. It is possible in principle, but it's really hard to see how Stark got it working. And then there's the shape of it. It's called an arc reactor. And both in the comics and the films, it looks like a tokamak. Uh, but that's a toroid filled with hot plasma inside which fusion reactions can be made to occur. You can think of a toroid as a cylinder bent into a circle. It looks like a donut. And the plasma is there simply to generate an environment hot enough for the fusion process to occur, as we explained earlier. The closest thing we have to that is the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, or ITER. But again, it generates energy through heat, uh, heat. which is something Tony Stark's arc reactor should never do. Anyway, that's the closest we can get to an explanation of how the arc reactor possibly works. If you have any ideas or questions, let us know. And now we move on. The modified core of the arc reactor. Aha, that's an interesting one. The original plans from Howard Stark that Tony used to build a modified core for his uh, reactor required him to synthesize a new element that replaced palladium. And that new element is... It's handier than you might think. I took the liberty of coming up with some options. This one's fun. She's been fitted with electrical relays that allow you to... What about this one? No, no, that's just a prototype. What's it made of? Vibranium. It's stronger than steel and a third the weight. It's completely vibration absorbent. How come it's not a standard issue? That's the rarest metal on Earth. What you're holding there, that's all we've got. You quite finished, Mr. Stark? I'm sure the captain has some unfinished business. What do you think? Yes, I think it works. Vibranium is a fictional element in the Marvel Universe. It's what makes up Stark's modified core for his arc reactor and it also makes up Cap's shield among other things. 
The first time Vibranium appeared in the comics was in an early issue of Daredevil, where artificially synthesized Vibranium is mentioned. Huh. That's interesting. And the Vibranium that we now commonly see being used everywhere in the MCU first appeared in an issue of Fantastic Four, where it was introduced as being found only in the nation of Wakanda. Vibranium is known for its sheer strength, which is why it is used in Cap's shield. Although we see Vibranium used more prominently elsewhere, it's in Cap's shield that we first come across it in the MCU after Stark's arc reactor. But we'll get to that in a moment. Yes. Generally, when a material has to be strong, we can make it in one of the two ways. You could take big, heavy atoms and build a closely packed structure. Right, or you could take small, lightweight atoms that bond incredibly tightly and make several layers that are closely packed. Steel and iron are examples of the first kind, and Kevlar is an example of the second. And the closest real-world equivalent we have to vibranium is probably graphene. graphene. Yes. Graphene is a two-dimensional material made of carbon atoms laid out in the form of hexagons. It's the strongest material we have ever tested. It conducts heat and electricity and is the base structure that makes up other carbon-based materials like diamonds, graphite and charcoal. Actually, graphene isn't just in our world. Um, in the comic books too, Iron Man's armor mask is lined with a layer of transparent graphene to protect Stark from people who might shoot at his face. Oh, this isn't talked about in the MCU though, is it? Not as I recall, no. But it makes sense even in comic books, because a layer of graphene is in fact transparent, and that's how Stark describes a layer of graphene in his mask. But we'll have to take any claim that it can stop a bullet with a pinch of salt. Absolutely. I'm not sure if one layer of graphene can stop a bullet. Um, two layers of graphene under specific conditions have been shown to be hard enough to stop a bullet though. Mm -hmm, interesting. But it's a temporary effect. It's called diamine. It doesn't work with three layers of graphene, or four, or ten, just two. Graphene has some interesting properties like that. Yes, I don't know if even diamine can be maintained consistently in a hardened state to stop a bullet anytime, anywhere, but... It's, it's a probability. So although we are talking about graphene as a real-world equivalent to vibranium, graphene itself exists in the Marvel Universe. Correct. So even if we don't draw parallels, we can still use graphene to explain how vibranium might work. In other words, we can think of vibranium as a metal that's structurally similar to graphene. It may or may not be made of carbon though. Right, but let's say it has the same sort of strong bonds and close hexagonal packing that make even a single layer of it extremely strong. To put it more scientifically, in graphene we have a material that has a low density and a large bulk modulus. Bulk modulus measures stiffness. Right. Um, consequently, graphene becomes a material through which sound travels really, really fast. For comparison, in air sound travels about 1 kilometer in 3 seconds. In the same time, in iron, sound can travel 15 kilometers. And in graphene? In graphene, sound can travel nearly 40 kilometers in the same 3 seconds. This is important because how quickly sound can travel through a material tells you how strong it can be. Just listen to this scene from Black Panther. You've been taking bullets, charging it up with kinetic energy. 
Put her on the truck. Naturally telling T'Challa that he's been taking bullets and charging up his suit with kinetic energy. We'll skip over the big words for a minute. Like charging something up with kinetic energy? <laughs> yes, there's some comic book physics jargon being thrown around, but let's skip over the words themselves and focus on what's happening here. By the way, this also explains why Cap uses vibranium shield. That's correct. Um, let's say a bullet hits the layer of graphene. We already said that it probably won't stop a bullet call, but it would reduce the impact compared to one layer of any other material that you can think of. So when the bullet hits this layer of graphene, or maybe we should call it vibranium, what's happening is that its kinetic energy is being transferred to the graphene. And the way that happens is through vibrations. The atoms at the point of contact with the bullet are first set into vibration then the atoms around those and then the atoms around those and so on are subsequently set into vibration as, as, well. as a result of this, the energy transferred from the bullet doesn't break the bonds in the material straight away but is instead dissipated as vibrations throughout the material. That's why the speed of sound in a material is so important for this argument. Sound is nothing but vibrations traveling through a substance. So if sound travels faster in a substance, that means vibrations that are set in motion when a bullet strikes vibranium will also spread through the material faster. Faster than they can destroy any bonds. That's what makes vibranium so unstoppable. And that's why Cap's shield is so strong and T'Challa's Black Panther suit is nearly invincible. Alright, let's get back to the Busan car chase scene from Black Panther. If you've watched that film, you'd have noticed that whenever T'Challa's suit takes a hit, it glows purple. Um, that's the color vibranium has always been shown to glow in, even in the comics. They use it to show that energy that's striking the suit is getting absorbed. Shuri explains this using nanites. Nanites are short for nanomachines, robots the size of a nanometer or so. The idea is that if you have energy absorption, then all that energy must go somewhere. And that's where the nanites come in. They help absorb and store that energy. To give you an overview, what's happening is that on impact, kinetic energy from a projectile is transferred to the vibranium in the suit or shield through vibrations. In Cap's shield, the energy is simply deflected. Yes, and in T'Challa's suit, it's absorbed and stored by nanites. The benefit of this is that he can choose to release this energy as a single explosive blast or a targeted projectile at any time. We don't know how he does this. I don't think it's ever stated clearly. But it's not really special. The mechanism could be as simple as a hidden button or commands that he might whisper to release all that stored energy. What is special is the purple glow of the suit. That's right, we could use that to explain how the energy is being stored in the suit. It's a phenomenon called sonoluminescence. You can supply energy to certain substances that'll cause their electrons to get excited and on returning to the ground state, they give off that absorbed energy in the form of light. This whole process of energy absorption, storage and release is pretty common in physics. The one thing that the Black Panther suit does is release on command rather than spontaneously. Exactly, and the process of initially supplying energy can be anything you can think of. Electricity, electromagnetic fields, chemical reactions and whatnot. 
T'Challa's suit could have just as well been designed to absorb all incoming energy and retain vibrations, giving them off slowly through heat dissipations. True, but there are two problems with that. One, you're losing all that energy for no reason. And two, you risk heating that suit up to unbearable temperatures. Which is why the absorb and release model is ideal. Sonoluminescence is a phenomenon where sound waves are converted into light. In short, this could explain the purple glow in T'Challa's suit. The energy it has absorbed is being stored by nanites that exhibit sonoluminescence. The energy it has absorbed is being stored by nanites that exhibit sonoluminescence. Then the light energy could be converted back and released in whatever form of energy necessary. That's as far as comic books go, but sonoluminescence in real life is nowhere near as advanced as in the Black Panther suit. The closest we've come is that we've used a transducer converting some form of energy into sound waves that are then released into a tank of photographic film development fluid. We noticed by chance that bubbles in the fluid were giving off flashes of light. In other words, the phenomenon we know in real life is not as stable or reliable as the one in the films and comics. We've only seen sonoluminescent light flashing for one hundred thousandth of a millionth of a second. And the bubbles giving off this light are a mere one millionth of a meter. For comparison, that's about three hundred times thinner than your fingernails. Not to forget the temperature inside such bubbles has been found to be about 2000 to 5000 Kelvin. Again, for comparison, that's about 10 times hotter than the hottest setting on most kitchen stoves. So it looks like, to keep things going, at least for the moment, we need some comic book physics after all. I suppose we do. Uh, but oh, let's not forget, the vibranium in the nails of the Black Panther suit are not made of the same vibranium as that found in Wakanda. Oh. They're made of a special form of vibranium found only in Antarctica called antimetal. It has a special property of being able to instantly dissolve any other material it comes in contact with. Ah, so that's why during the car chase in the Black Panther film, T'Challa is able to tear up the wheels of an SUV in one go and he's able to carve his fingers into the road to gain traction. Yes, all that is antimetal. It's like a metallic equivalent of water. As in, where water can dissolve most solvents, antimetal can dissolve any other solid material. But in real life, no such material exists. We hope you enjoyed this series finale. It was all about the physics behind some superhero tech in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and a bit from the comics. We've had a great first series. We've received more positive responses than we'd ever imagined we would, so we're really thrilled to bring out more episodes soon. We'll be back in the end of the third quarter of this year with more when Series 2 begins. Until then, you can always listen to our old episodes on podcast.physicscapsule.com and you can learn some more physics on physicscapsule.com too. And if you know someone who you think will enjoy this podcast, tell them about it. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Overcast and wherever else good podcasts are available. The Physics Capsule Podcast is hosted by VH Bilwadi and me, Roshan Sahil. This episode was recorded at our headquarters in Mysore, India. Thanks for listening and see you in September this year when we return for Series 2 of the Physics Capsule Podcast.